This episode of the Passionate DJ Podcast was made possible by the awesome crew at Three Dimensional Entertainment. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael. I'm sitting here with my co-hosts, Tony and Tripp, in beautiful Dayton Studios. How are you guys feeling today? Pretty good, man. Good. You guys excited? Yes, sir. And you know it. We should be, because we've been offered the opportunity to share a table and a microphone with a musical legend. He's a hip-hop pioneer, accomplished music producer, and a passionate DJ. One of the most innovative producers of the electro era and a key force in the development of West Coast hip-hop. His sound has proven to influence music and dance floors in the decades since. We are honored to be in the presence of such a prolific artist. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my extreme privilege to introduce the Egyptian lover on the Passionate DJ podcast. Hello, baby. Thanks for being here, man. Oh, man, it's great to be here. Now, the first thing I want to say <clears throat> is thank you so much for being such a trooper about this and a good sport. We're all here. It's almost midnight. We're hanging out in the studio and... We're ready to get this done. So thanks a lot for being here, man. Oh, it's great to be here, man. They just unloaded the camel off the off the airplane. We brought it down <laughs> here, put in the records. I thought I was getting ready to DJ, but hey, we want a mic. That's right. Let's do this. Let's do it. <clears throat> so first thing I want to ask is just kind of what what initially drew you to DJing in the first place? What wow. where does your passion <clears throat> come from? Well, I used to go to the parties to dance and um this one cat named Bleeps from Uncle Jam's Army was playing um, a Rick James song, Give It To Me Baby. And at the beginning, we kept going on and on and on. I'm like, oh, that's bad. What is that, an instrumental? I mean, what is this? It's like, when I came home last night, then no more words were played. The, the music just kept going on and on and on. I'm like, what is he doing? So the, the next party, I, I kind of like went up to the turntables and was staring at him. And he was actually starting the record over. And when it said, when he came home last night, he would fade it over to the other side. So it would be, doom, 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 doom. <laughs> like, man, that's bad. I want to I do that. And that kind of inspired me to be a DJ like him. And then I saw other DJs, and I really got into it. And I saw other DJs and what they were doing. And, and then um, I had one turntable at home. <laughs> My friend brought his turntable over. And I started doing um, a, few, a few tricks. And it just came easy to me because... I know how to pause button mixtape. Mm. So I was doing that at first. And then so getting two turntables was kind of easy for me just to start doing tricks. And my brother and my friend down the street named Dwayne was telling me all these ideas about all these mixes that I can do. I'm like, that's a good idea. And I would do them. So they actually created <laughs> the monster in me by giving me all these different mix nice. styles that, damn, I bet you can't do this. We'll try to do this and do this. And I did everything they said on these cheap turntables I had at home. When I got with Uncle Jam's Army, <clears throat> excuse me. When I got with Uncle Jam's Army, they had Technique 1200s, and the motors in the Technique 1200s was so powerful. I could do anything on these turntables. I mean, I was mixing <laughs> with my elbow and scratching, <laughs> just just showing off. Yeah. And it was it was like, wow, these turntables are made to do this. So, how did that turn into your first like actual gig somewhere, like a DJ gig? Well, uh, I knew I could DJ. But nobody knew, nobody else did know. So I gave my own party. I guess the place held about 500 people and about 100 people showed up, which was cool for me. 100 people showed up, right? Yeah. Didn't make my money back, but I had 100 people come to see me. And so 
if you're not going to make money with it, um, I was just losing money by doing these, these parties. So one day, um, the guy from Uncle Jam's Army was passing out flyers in the mall, and my friend Snake Puppy, who later on joined L.A. Dream Team, him and I was um, hanging out in the mall, and he said, Yo, Raj, you guys got the best dance promotion team there is, but if you want the number one DJ, you got to get my boy Egyptian Lover right here. And Roger knew me as a dancer because I used to go to parties and dance, but um, he didn't know I was a DJ. He said, You could DJ? I'm like, Yeah. And I knew that I was faster than all his DJs, and I could do a lot more stuff than his DJs. He was like, come to the studio with me. So we went to the studio, we did a commercial for the next party. At the end of the commercial, he said, and we're gonna have a DJ contest. I'm like, <laughs> now I don't know if I'm the best in, in, in all of LA, but I know I was better than the three guys he had already. Yeah. I'm like, uh-oh. So he had this one guy from Atlanta named Iceberg, and he had three other cats, like two from Compton and one other guy. I'm like, oh man. So they put me on first. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get smoked. <laughs> Uncle Jam's Army is like the plate, like it was the group. Like, if you were with them, you, you made it. It's like, this is it. I was like, damn. So they put me on first and they gave me Aretha Franklin. Jump to it. I never heard this song before. It was promo, two promo copies. I put the headphones on, I listened to it, it said, jump, jump, jump to it, a cappella. And then the beat came in. And the beat was like maybe two bars to four bars, it just beat. And then the bass line came in. I'm like, I could rock that. Because <laughs> I'm fast. <laughs> yeah. So I guess they were trying to sabotage me, but I killed it. <laughs> nice. So I got on the turntables, jump, jump, jump to it. Boom, cat, boom, cat, bigger, boom, cat, jump, jump, boom. And I just kept doing that, right? <laughs> jump, chicka, jump, jump, chicka, chicka, jump, boom, cat, boom, cat, boom, boom, cat, boom, 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 cat, boom, boom. And I was just killing the turntables, doing cat, 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 jump. And, it, and everybody stopped dancing. It was like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> what is he? And I didn't know I was doing anything great because I didn't know. You're just doing what you did. Yeah, I just did what I did in front of my friends and all that. And I heard one record from Grandmaster Flash called Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel where he would do like pat, 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 and then Flash, and I call it Flash, and we just take a record and just start it and stop it, start it, and stop it. So I knew that level of DJing, and I could do all that. <laughs> so I did that plus more stuff and I was just doing all kind of stuff like making the record sound like it was going backwards from shop boom shop. So I'm doing all this trying to show off because I think it's a DJ contest. I need to do everything I know right now just to kill it. So then Roger came up to the DJ booth and said, Oh, I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> he ran full speed from the door all the way to the DJ booth. He's like, Egypt, Jim Shalaba, that's you? I'm like, Yeah. He says, What record you want? I'm like, I get to pick my record? <laughs> like, oh, shoot. So I said, give me um, Tom Tom Club. It's nasty by Grandmaster Flash. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. High. You know, all the Tom Tom Club signing records. And I was just putting them on, flipping them off, putting them on, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off. Yeah, putting them on, taking them off. Two turntables, just, just doing all kind of stuff. <laughs> Nobody was dancing. They were standing on tables and chairs and all of them just watching me like. <laughs> <laughs> and so I love them like, okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And so I looked at the guy behind me. Three DJs just turned around and walked away. Like, I'm not even DJing. <laughs> Forget it. And the other guy from Atlanta said, how you get up here? And I said, my friend said, you got to wait home? I said, no, nah, I'm taking you home. Because if I'm your driver, I got a job. <laughs> so nice. he picked me up and took me home for every Uncle Jam party. And I taught him how to DJ. And we became like a little iceberg in Egypt show on the turntables. Nice. Can you tell us about Uncle Jam's Army? Kind of, you know, introduce that uh, to our to our listeners. Uncle Jam's Army was already a huge dance promotion team. I mean, they was giving parties at like the Holiday Inn ballrooms and stuff like that, Biltmore ballrooms downtown LA and all that. 
mean, they were already huge. I mean, they were selling out every party they did. Then they did a um, party at the LA Convention Center with other groups like the World Class Wrecking Crew and the group called LSD and Z Cars. These were all the top people in LA, and they did that party. And I was like, wow, this is a cool gig. I went as a dancer just to go there. But the people I saw from Uncle Jam way outdid everybody else's crew. And I told them, I said, man, y'all could have did this by yourself. This just would have been a big Uncle Jam party. Yeah. And they didn't know they could do that, but I said, y'all probably could have did it by yourself. So that year passed, and that's when he hired me to be a DJ. And every show we did, we packed the house, and it was always a line. Like, we could have just ended the party, kicked everybody out, and filled it back up again. <laughs> so every party was lined up around the corner. We even opened up a club, and we had, like, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was always packed. 2,000 people every weekend. Boom, no, probably 1,000 people every weekend. Boom, 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 boom. And so it was like, let's do something bigger. So we started doing the Veterans Auditorium with, like, 2,500 people, sold it out. And we got to do something bigger. So we said, how about the L.A. Sports Arena? 10,000 people. Like, think we can pull it off? We can pull it off. So we started putting flyers up everywhere. And the first one we did, we sold it out. 10,000 party people. We had 100 Southern Vegas speakers, six turntables, and it was just incredible. And this is when, approximately? This is 82, 82. going into 83. Okay. And just to give some kind of context to to some, especially some of the younger listeners. I mean, we're talking about, it's, you know, we're talking about people like you and Ice-T and Ice like, T Dr. Was, Dre, the world-class uh, record crew. rapper, but he wasn't popular yet. Okay. He had made a record called Cold Wind Madness, but nobody played it. I mean, it was just a record. Dr. Dre with the record crew, they were not on Uncle Jam's Army level. I mean, they were, they had their thing, their niche. Mm-hmm. So they had the Eve at the Dark, and that was their thing. They did a few parties other than that, but they were like there. Like level two. <laughs> yeah. Uncle Jam's Army was already at level 10. And nobody could compete with Uncle Jam's Army. So it was no comparison, no way, no how. So when I joined up with, with Uncle Jam's Army, I took it from 10 to 20. And um, people would come to the parties to see me DJ. One time I was at the club DJing, and um, one of the guys walked up and says, Egypt, Egypt. I'm like, I mix them, I'm like, what, what? When you finish doing your thing right now, I just want you to turn around and look over your shoulder. Because at the DJ booth, we had staircase going up this way and down this way, and there was a bridge to go in the back of the DJ booth. So I turned around and looked, and every DJ in L.A. was standing there. <laughs> so the Wrecking Crew with Dre and Yellow and all them, and L.A. Dream Team, every dance promotion team there was, and every DJ from L.A. was standing over the bri- on the bridge just looking at me. My friend Iceberg looks at, don't you motherfuckers have jobs? <laughs> it's Saturday night in LA. You know, how are you motherfuckers staring at Egypt? <laughs> it's like, they, they was like, who's this Egypt dude and why is he getting so popular? And I was, they were just seeing me do stuff. And um, we played um, 777 9311, and one of the parts goes, dun, 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 and I heard somebody scream and it was one of my friends who was a DJ but he ain't never seen me actually do it, do the stuff before and so I started showing off doing all kind of stuff <laughs> and they, they all was like okay he's legit could you kind of take us back to that era and, and kind of describe what the West Coast West Coast hip hop scene was like sort of before the gangster rap era well, it was um, 
the word hip hop probably didn't even exist. It was just um, a rap record, Rapper's mm-hmm. Delight. When Rapper's Delight came out, it was kind of cool that you could make a record without singing. So then I started hearing mixtapes. Like I had a mixtape at Monroe with my rap on it. Snake Puppy had a mixtape. He, he put his rap on it. We just sell our mixtapes in Long Beach. A guy named Mixpresser Spade walked up. I gave him my mixtape. He gave me his. We listened to each other's raps. So it was like a handful of, of guys in L.A. who were starting to get a little popular with these mixtapes. And um, the first record was um, Ice-T, and um, another one was Captain Rap. And then um, Disco Daddy and Captain Rap came out, and they had a nice record with a nice groove. And then Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had left the time. They came to L.A. and they put a bass line on the same song. And the song was a hit. <laughs> I mean, L.A. was was playing it like crazy. And we actually went to the studio and helped them mix a little bit of the um, of the music. And then we left and kind of gave us an idea like, okay, we can do a record. We saw the studio. Then I started um, doing records with um, a, a movie production crew. We did a um, documentary called Breaking and Entering. And I did all the beats and um, me and the glove um, did all the scratching on it. We hired a keyboard player and we kind of coached him, telling him what to, what to play. We did all those songs in one day, left that night and did the party at the club. <laughs> That's how young we were. And um, the, we only pressed up 25 for the movie and then we played the beats and I see would rap live over the beats for the documentary. And today that record is like rare as hell. Yeah. So, so um, it was like one of the first records of that kind, like electro really, just the beats and scratching. And then after that, the yeah, same. those records still exist? Yeah, you see a couple of them, but they're sky high. Yeah. <laughs> sky high money. And um, from that, I went to the studio with Uncle Jam's Army, and the same kind of beats that was in the, the Breaking the Internet soundtrack, I kind of used those beats for Yes, 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 and a program, a beat for Uncle Jam called Dollar Freak. And we went in there, and we just did the song, and kind of threw the label, and we just didn't, didn't think much of it. But then the radio station started playing it like every hour on the hour. And I was like, wow. And I caught the studio bug when that happened. I'm like, I got to go back to the studio because I got all these ideas that I need to, to do. So I went to the studio and I did Egypt, Egypt. And when I played Egypt, Egypt to Roger, he was like, man, you can't put that out right now. It's going to kill Dollar Freaking Yes, Yes, Yes. He said, you got to wait, wait at least six months. I'm like, oh, man. He said, you got to wait six months. So I'm holding on to Easy Reach for about six months. I went back to the studio and I did a remix. So now I got a long version of it. So now you have the oh, 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 oh. I went to the studio and did a remix on it. And I played it for Raj. He's like, man, that song, that song was a hit. I was like, can I play at the party? He's like, you can play, you can do more than playing at the party. He said, this song is a hit. So it was like, you want to sign to a record label or something? No, I don't want to sign to a record label because everybody we knew who had record deals were broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they come into our parties to get their records played, but they were broke. Some things never change, right? <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm looking at them like, okay, they're not making the money. So, so why are you not making the money? They said, well, we got money, but we had to pay for this, 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 and this. And we get more money for our next album coming out. Da, 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 da. 
I'm like, damn. So I'm like, well, who making the money? The record label. Then I need to make my own record label. Mm. If that's the person making the money, then that's who I want to be. So you, you're you a, a DJ initially. That, like, that was your first... My first thing was actually making mixtapes and rapping on the mixtapes. Okay. So I started out as a rapper on the mixtapes. Okay. But just making mixtapes to make people party and just have fun. I just had, I did that for fun, but I sold so many, it became a business. Okay. And I knew, okay, get this money from this, go buy some more mixtapes, maybe go buy a better tape machine, and I started making it like a business. Then I had a ton of money. Okay, and I'm start buying more records and just buying different records and putting them on the mixtapes and... And just like mixtape A, B, and C now. So just one mixtape. I have three of them with three different kinds of music. So it became a business. Were these mixtapes like, were they sort of compilations? Or were you, were you cutting, you know, pieces of music, putting them together? Were you was, taking breaks? I was or how pause button mixtapes. So like Cameo did Shake Your Pants. So everybody would have Shake Your Pants on your, on your mixtape. It's the number one record. But my mixtape would be mixed. <laughs> and I'm thinking of mixing mean I'm going to do it like, I would dream of doing on turntables. Before I know how to do it on turntables, I did it with a pause button mixtape. So my version would be like, the, the regular version is like, shake your pants, shake, 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 but then that. But if you bought my mixtape, it goes, shake your pants, shake, 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 and it starts over again. And like, what the hell was that? And that's just part of the mixtape. The whole tape is like that. So I'm pause button doing mixes all the way through the whole 30-minute side, flipped it over to the next 30-minute side, all pause button mixes. And then a rapper come on, and I'm rapping. So you might hear bounce, rock, skate, roll, boom. Bong, bong, skippy doo die, y'all. And I'm just rapping through the headphones and just doing right. my thing, just rocking the mixtape. <clears throat> Not knowing what I'm doing, but it sold a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm in high school, 11th grade, walking around with $500 in my pocket in 1980. 1980. $500 in 1980 mm-hmm. was a lot of <laughs> money. Right. Right. I mean, you can go in the store and you can buy anything you want, <laughs> but yeah. $500. So, And I'm doing this on a weekly basis. So, I'm like, so it became a business. So I knew I can make a record. And do the same thing. Not knowing, like my mind wasn't big enough to know, I'm going to make this record for the United States or the world. I'm going to make this record for L.A. <laughs> and I know about 12 record stores that'll buy it. I probably can make $1,000 <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> so I made each beach. We made Dollar Freak and we were selling them out the trunk of the car going all the record store. We made a lot of money. So I was holding on to each beach. I'm, I'm knowing... Doing the parties, like, just wait till y'all hear each beat. Just wait till y'all hear <laughs> So I waited six months, and it's like, okay, let's put it out. I put it out, brought it to the radio station. They freaked out. They put it on. Not only did they freak out on Egypt, Egypt, they flipped it over and played MMB Goes Boom. What is a DJ if it can't scratch? And a song called The Ultimate Scratch was only like a minute and a half long. And, and the, the program director said, we got to play this song. Because sometimes before the hour, we only got two minutes left. And your song fits right in there. So at the end of every hour, we're playing the Ultimate Scratch because it's only okay. a minute and a half long. Yeah. So they was playing Egypt, Egypt every hour on the hour, Bigo Boom every two hours, what is a DJ every two hours, and then Ultimate Scratch at the end of every hour. So it was all Egypt all the time. Wow. And I'm thinking, my friends can hear this. That's all I'm thinking. Mm. It's on the radio, my friends can hear it. Not knowing that everybody else can hear it too. I didn't, know, I didn't really realize that until way later. So then it starts selling, and it starts selling well. I mean, instead of selling 10 records to the record stores, they're buying 100 records per record store mm. locally. And then the Preston plant said, hey, is it okay if I send it out to 
my friends who record, record stores around, you know, America. I'm like, I guess. He shipped out about 100,000 records <laughs> to all his friends, <laughs> to every record store that he knew of. So he knew he was sitting on something. Yeah, but my, my phone number was actually on the record label. So if they wanted to reorder some records. So he probably sent like three to every record store. So I lost that money right there because he probably collected on that. But the reorders came to me through my phone. And my phone was ringing off the hook. I'm like, what the heck? So I had to hire somebody to answer the phone. <laughs> then we had to get like an eight-way phone, like the song says. So they can answer. So I had to hire multiple people to answer for these reorders. And everybody was reordered. Like, this is crazy. I didn't do anything. <laughs> and said, yeah, we, we got three in the mail. They sold like that. So we want wow. 10 more. We want 20 more. We want 50 more. And then one guy in New York, um, after a year went by, he sold over a million Egypt Egypts, just one store. Wow. So it's like, and he never skipped paying money. He, just, he always paid on time. I'm like, Run DMC came to LA and I was like, so I like my record says, we ain't heard it. You had to hear, I sold a million records in New York. You had to hear the record said, we ain't heard it. So I paid it for him, like, yeah, this is hot. So we bought a ticket, me and two of my friends went to New York. Went to the record store. It's a small little store, probably about big as this. <laughs> like, how they sell that many records? This is not like a big giant superstore. This is a tiny little mom and pop store. I walk in the store. I look in the bin, and they had just got an order of, of like twenty thousand records. And I saw like three or four records in the bin. I'm like, okay, so what's going on? <laughs> so the guy walks out and says, "Oh shoot, Egyptian lover, man, you gonna let me retire? Man, I'm selling these records like I can like." Where? <laughs> yeah, so I ship them all to Europe, oh. London, and, and then Germany. I'm like, ah, oh, that's where the fan mail been coming from. Yeah. <laughs> I get a ton of fan mail from from England and 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 Paris and Germany, all over Germany. I'm like, well, how they get in the record? It was through him. He wasn't even selling them in New York. He was as soon as he get them, he just cross ship them all the way. So up out to of Europe. nowhere, you just you suddenly realize that you have an international audience, and you had no idea. No idea. I got all this fan mail, and they're like, how do they know about it? Wow. <laughs> well, a lot of the fan mail said they were there for the Olympics in 1984. Uh-huh. While people were there for the Olympics, the radio station was playing me every hour on hour. And it's like, man, who is this Egyptian lover cat? <laughs> this is new music for us. And so I had a couple people from Germany saying, yeah, we, we bought the record while we was there, and we love you, blah, 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 blah. So I thought maybe all this fan mail was coming from people that came over from the Olympics, but it wasn't. It was actually selling records out there. Then I started getting reorders from out there, and it's like, wow, this is this is crazy. So before I knew it, I mean, I was still doing concerts and having fun. Before I knew it, I had, like, hired all my friends, had a big warehouse, and I, I had the make of an eye. I'm like, dang, this is a real company. And I'm just just like you guys, just, just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a real company. Like, I'm paying these guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is, this is crazy. And... From me being, I guess, who I am, a Virgo, I had to have control over everything. So not only did I write the songs, produce the songs, rap on the songs, have it on my own record label, I had to have my own distribution company as well. Because why should I give somebody else some money when I could just do it myself? I hired all these people, maybe they can do it. You still operate that way? Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, why pay somebody else to do it when I could just do it myself? So I just kept it all in-house and the artwork, keep everything in-house. So nice. why not? What drew your attention from, so, you, I mean, you kind of lived in, you know, these mixtapes and then the, the turntables and stuff, but what, what drew your eyes towards the 808 
How did that love affair start? That started, well, I heard Kraftwerk numbers, and I thought that was futuristic and just, just so far ahead of its time. mixtape with numbers and rap over it but I didn't get a chance to do it because a lot of other stuff was going on with me and Snake Puppy doing these these street rhymes street raps not gangster rap yet but street raps so it'll be like I got four Mercedes to impress the young ladies and GQ wherever I go and smoke a weed here and there but it was just talking like like that and um didn't get a chance to do the numbers rap and we was in the record store selling the mixtapes and we heard Planet Rock. I'm like, oh, Snake, that's the song I wanted to do. But they beat me to it. They rapped mm. over numbers. Like, man, that was the idea I had. So then I knew that I had good ideas because somebody else did it. And then I heard another song come out with the same beat. I'm like, oh, that's the beat again. Like, I got to do it. So the second time I heard the beat, I went to the studio. And that's when we did Dollar Freaking Yes, Yes, Yes. And I like, still had this beat in my head. I got to do, I got to do Egypt, Egypt. I got to do this. And I, had to, I did it finally, and then six months later it came out. Like, yeah, that's my style. That's what I wanted to do. And everybody started doing that style. So then you heard, you heard my song, Egypt, <sighs> Egypt. <sighs> then you hear Dr. Dre, <sighs> Dr. Dre. Then <laughs> <laughs> you hear LA Dream Team, don't breathe, <sighs> don't breathe. So everybody was doing this, my style. Okay. But, you know, I guess they called it LA rap, but... I got an interview with Baby Dance and said, no, it's not L.A. rap. It's Egyptian lover music. Mm. I stole it from Kraftwerk and Prince, morphed it together, and came up with this. And not only did um, I get it from Kraftwerk, but I got it from a group called Ebony Webb, who was trying to be Prince at the same time. They were breathing on their record called Something About You. I took that breathing. Prince has been breathing from day one, from soft and wet to sexy dancer. Yeah. And I was actually, yes, 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 but sexy dancers breathing in reverse. And so we did that, and so we, I was, and then before that, Blowfly did some breathing on one of his things, like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, ah. So I took that from Blowfly and kind of did the, ooh, ah, ah, ooh. So all that came from Prince and Blowfly, and then I heard Kraftwerk do it a year later, <clears throat> and then I got it from that, too. But it was already in my DNA. What about the name Egyptian Lover? How did that come about? That was about? my street name, my gangster name. Because okay. I didn't want to be a gangster because I noticed that when guys put on the book. So all of us had jackets and put our names on the back of our jackets. So I know my boy knock you out. Every day he fighting. <laughs> Every day he got to try to knock somebody out because his name is knock you out. Another boy had 22 on the back of his jacket because he always carried a 22. Never got into a fight. Like, that's clever. <laughs> and I should put a shotgun on the back of my right. jacket. The novice so I might have another gun and go try to shoot shotguns. So I was like, no, I'm put Egyptian lover on the back of my jacket. And it worked. All the ladies came to Egyptian lover. It's like, okay, y'all fight over there and I have all the ladies. I'll protect the ladies. <laughs> and, and just and I had that name like seventh grade and it just kept it. It was oh, okay. like a street name. And it kind of worked out for the music too. So you're 
your production rig now, like uh, take the, the album 1984, which came out, what, into last year, I think? Yeah. What does your production rig look like now compared to what you were exactly using? Exactly the same. Really? And I try a few new things. Can, can you describe that? Obviously, 808. The 808, the Jupiter 8, um, the SH-101, the same vocoder, the SVC-350 by Roland. So pretty much everything was Roland. Mm-hmm. And then I um, had a Matrix 12 by Oberheim. And um, that's pretty much it right there. Are you still recording to tape? Or are you going into like a Pro Tools um, rig or something like that? The studios don't have the tape anymore. And um, there's not many engineers that know how to align the tape. So we had to use analog straight to Pro Tools. Okay. And then we master from Pro Tools onto tape and then get it mastered. What about your, your DJ setup? What? Two turntables, vinyl, a mixer, and, you stick- and an 808 on the right-hand side. Okay, great. Um, why do you still play records? I mean, is that is that because it's such a part of your your history? Because I'm a DJ, <laughs> and when I grew up, a DJ played vinyl records. Mm-hmm. So I show the crowd what I do as a DJ and what I did to get popular back in the day, and I do that still today because I went to a party and African Mabados get ready to play, and man, these these guys I knew, they, their, their name of the group was called Who Cares. And um, I produced one of the records. And they were so excited to see Grandma to, to, to see um, Africa Mambata. And when he came on stage and had any vinyl with him, he had, I think, uh, his laptop. And they were like, huh? We came to see Africa Mambata. Like, what made him Africa Mambata? And he played the laptop thing, which kind of took away from the show. It didn't mm-hmm. take away from him, but it took away from the show for, for them, yeah. the crowd. <laughs> And then they said they saw another DJ, and he did the same thing. He was using a laptop, and another DJ was looking at No, we don't want to see what they're doing now. We want to see what made them them back mm-hmm. in the day. Because I didn't get a chance to see them back in the day, and now I get a chance to see them. I want to see why they are who they are. So I said, you know what? I'm never going to go to Serato. I'm going to stick with vinyl so they can see exactly what I did back in the day 30 years ago. If you come to my show right now, you'll see what I did 30 years ago with the same exact vinyl I had back then. Nice. The, the same literal the records. same exact records. The, I mean, they still, you can still play those. <laughs> of course. Vinyl lasts forever. That's great, man. So could you describe, like, some of your, your DJ tricks that you, maybe wow. some that you pioneered? Well, in the beginning, um, I did a lot of pause button mixtapes, like I told you, like shake, 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 shake. So I was selling tapes at school, like I was telling you, and um, this grown man Walked up to me. I'm like, uh-oh, whose daddy is that? I'm in trouble. <laughs> I said a few curse words on the, on the mixtape. I'm like, oh, sh- I'm in trouble. He said, so they said, you're an Egyptian lover? I'm like, yes. He says, you made this mixtape? I'm like, yeah. You think you can do this at my club? I'm like, I guess. I gave you $500. Yeah, I could do it. <laughs> How, you know, what I got to do, I, okay, I'll do it. So he paid me the five hundred dollars right right then and there. I'm like, damn! Wow. So I had five hundred from the tapes already. Now I got a thousand dollars. I'm super rich. I'm, I'm looking at every girl like, come here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living Egyptian lover right now. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I got to do this club Saturday night. I got a whole week, you know, before I do it. Called my uncle's like, I ain't got no car. Can you drive me to this club? This guy want me to um, do my thing at the club. I'm like, all right. So then I get to home, like, how am I going to do this record stuff at the club? And I've been doing it on pause button mixtapes. He already paid me the money. So we're back there figuring out how to do it. So my brother said, 
Well, you know how you do shake, 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 shake. He said, well, while that one's going, bring this one backwards while the, the knob is over there and then do it that way and call it the triple threat. So it's going to shake, 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 Like, ah, it sounds like an edit. So I'm doing live turntable pause button mixtapes. I'm doing live turntable now. Remember, I only had one turntable, so my friend had to bring his turntable over. There was no such thing as a slip pad back then, so I cut the Warner Brother plastic, you know, to make the record slide back easier, so I had to grip the whole turntable and do it. Right. So I created my own step pad. I didn't even know what the name of it was. And we just cut that in some cardboard and put a hole in it, and I could do it. And I developed a real light touch. So I think a week of practicing, I had it down. I was ready. Like, I'm going to turn this club out. I walk in with my records, ready to turn it out. He said, oh, I didn't want you to mix. I want you to do that rap you did. <laughs> I ain't practiced the rap. <laughs> I was practicing the DJ. So I'm a DJ, but you don't want me to DJ now. I'm like, oh, he paid me $5 for like three minutes? Like, oh, this is heaven. So I get up there and I'm just, I did the rap. I, I kind of knew it by memory. I did the whole rap, ad lib, did some more shit, talked to the women. They were screaming. And I'm like, I'm 17 years old at 21 Over Club, and these women are screaming, saying all kind of nasty stuff. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> My uncles took me um, home after and said, boy, you got talent. I'm like, I didn't think I had to do that. I said, yeah, well, why you bring all these records? I thought I was DJing. <laughs> so I went back now, said I have all the DJ skills. I'm like, I need to do something with these skills. I learned how to do all this stuff. I don't know where to go. So that's why we did my own, my own party, and one thing led to another, and boom. You guys want to toss in any questions here? I'd... Yeah, I've got a question. I was born in the late 70s, and through the 90s was uh, was where my, my musical genesis really started to blossom. And as you well know, that's, you know, the the time when G-Funk and gangster rap and all that mm-hmm. stuff was really at its peak. But before that, it, it there was a noticeable split in mm-hmm. hip-hop to gangster rap. So what what made you not go the gangster rap route, like Ice-T and right. Dr. Dre and all those guys did? Well, before N.W.A., Ice-T did his stuff, but there was also right. Mixed Master Spade who was doing gangster rap in, in the hood. And it just wasn't me. I did some street raps, but it just wasn't me. When I, when I performed um, my street rap, I didn't like the response. It wasn't a party. Okay. Like Alonzo said in the movie, we want these motherfuckers thinking about pussy, not pistols. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you want to party, you want them to have fun. Fun, right. Not get their, their attitude up. You're like, mm. I'm, a, I'm a gangster now. Now we have, we have problems. Right, right. So at an early age, I knew I didn't want to glorify the gangster thing because I don't want to live that. I don't right. want to live that life. I didn't put no gangster name on the back of my jacket. I'm not going to portray it out to the public. I'm not gonna make believe this is fun when I grew up in it and it wasn't fun. Right, right. Mm. Now people who didn't grow up in it, they could say, Y'all, yeah, it's fun, fun, fun. I wanna be a thug. It ain't no fun. Right. When right. you when you hear gunshots every day and that's not what I wanted to glorify. Mm. I don't wanna have saggy pants and a t shirt like everybody else who was couldn't afford a belt <laughs> and real clothes. They had to wear saggy clothes and wife beaters, because that's what all they mom could afford because maybe they were on the county and that's all they could afford. So you go to swap me and buy 10 shirts, 10 white beaters for a, a dollar or whatever, and some saggy khakis. <laughs> that was the poor look. Right. I didn't want to glorify that because that wasn't me. I wanted to be out the hood. So I picked a place far, far away from the hood, which was Egypt. And that's where I was at. Hmm. 
So when I heard Mixed Master Spade, that was cool for him. He's saying what he's saying about the hood. That's good. Heard Ice-T's thing. That's good. When I heard NWA and them thing, I heard the, what they were saying. But my whole thing was, you guys could have did this in a real studio. It would sound better. Because mm. what I'm sounding right now sounds like y'all did it on a four-track cassette tape. Which, if you're making a record, that ain't cool. Right. Go into a studio and do it professionally and da-da-da-da-da. And then um, I guess after they made the first record, they made a little bit of money. They went to the studio after that, and then it started sounding better and better. Right. But it wasn't no no big thing because, I mean, sir, um, Mix Master Spade was doing the title. Everybody was doing gangster rap in L.A. I mean, it was the, it was happening in L.A. All this gangster stuff was happening in L.A. So, And I thought it wasn't going to be a big hit because it's just mm. L.A. gangster rap. Sure. But when NWA took off, it's like, ah, so now all the ghettos and all the areas loving this. It's like their theme song. Now I get it. Everybody needs a theme song. And everybody can't be a lover. Everybody <laughs> can't be a player like Ice-T. But everybody can be a thug. <laughs> <laughs> Just be broken, you're a thug or whatever. You know, you, you put your hustle on, whatever you got to do. It's all kinds of thugs, and everybody can be a thug. You can be a thug for a minute, and you can be a thug for life. So it worked. And I was proud of them. Like, man, they made it work, and it worked. No doubt. No doubt. So let me ask you this one, then. Uh, because you stayed true to your sound and, and what resonated with you, uh, how, have you how, how have you kept true to your sound for all these years and still been able to connect with people of all ages? Well, when, when I was young, <coughs> before I made music, I knew if I made music, I got to have my sound. And I learned that from listening to my father's record collection when I heard Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin records. <coughs> from the day one, their first record sounded like their last record. Mm. It's like, they kept their sound. That's what they are. Dean Martin is Dean Martin. He, he didn't be this person. He, didn't be, he, he, he kept the sound. So I said, you know, if I, if I ever made music, I'm going to get a sound, and I'm going to stick with my sound. So they can buy my first album, or they can buy my last album. It's going to have my sound, and that's why I mm -hmm. did it. Yeah. I remember getting a 12-inch, You're So Fine, a long time ago, and it just reminded me of Egypt, Egypt. It's great it's sound. Like, that's the sound. Yeah. Right. Like, a, a lot of people copied my sound, and they did, did something else, and they're still copying my sound and doing other things. Or they have one record on the album that sound like me, but that's my sound. And I got it from Morphin Craftwork and... Uncle Jam's Army Parties, you know, with the more bass and Prince Nastiness, and I kind of morphed all that together and made my sound. Very cool. I love that, too, because it, that's, that's a very DJ approach to production, to yeah. where you're, you're borrowing ideas and sampling and all these kind Never of sampled. things. And making, well, okay, fair <laughs> enough, but, you know, borrowing these ideas and making your it's, own it's, thing it's out of it. Inspired by all these ideas. Yeah. So, let me ask you this. What... What are your thoughts on, you know, that we're an audience of DJs, our listeners, and so there's DJs of all types, you know, right. wedding DJs, you got club DJs, you got uh, laptop DJs, you got vinyl DJs. What are your thoughts on modern DJ culture and, and where it's gone technologically and, and as kind of a second part, is there still anybody that's, that still holds it down like you do? I think from a DJ perspective. That style that I did was actually my style. So I, I didn't expect a lot of people to get that style. Now, when I stopped DJing in L.A. and started making more records and became a record label owner, 
the next 10 years on the radio, all the LA DJs was doing my mixes and my style. And I'm like, wow, they're still doing my style of mixing. Like, can't they come up with something else? And then it started to, to, to taper off a little bit and they started getting their own style, more scratching and more trick scratching and things like that, like DJ Joe Cooley and, and all those guys came around. And then, then I said, all right, now they're doing something different. And then like probably after the 10 years, they started doing new records, mixing and doing different breaks than I did. I'm like, now, now sounds different. But for 10 years, LA was just like, whatever I did, it stuck with them. They heard it on the radio, I'm like, I need to be him. Like I saw Bleeps and I need to be him. All the guys in LA was like, I need to be him. And I was the first superstar DJ in LA. So yeah, I understand, cause I, I mean, when I saw Bleeps, I was like, wow, I want to do that. When I came home last night, how did he stop the words? What, what did he do? What did he? Do? I was I was like wow, and yeah. and I saw that look when I DJed for the crowd. I saw that my look in their eyes, but it wasn't just one kid; it was the whole audience. I'm like, damn. But so now I did what Bleeps did to me. I did to them, nice, and it made me feel good. Like okay, I'm a DJ. I did to them what. I, I gave him that feeling. And then my best friend, who was my worst critic, he was like, okay, we saw Grandmaster Flash. He's supposed to be the baddest there is. We know you can kick his ass. <laughs> but I'm going to create a mix, and if you do this, then you're the baddest of all time. He said, there's a song, Sticky Situation, just came out on the radio. We, we just got out the record store. I never mixed it before. We just picked it up. And he said, on the breakdown, he goes, you got sticky situation, situation sticky. He said, I want you to go, you got, you got, you got, got. And so we, we're on the bus coming home from the, from, the, from the record store. And at the party that night, I'm like, how in the hell am I going to do this? Well, you got, you got, it's easy. That's just two records. You got, you got. But how am I going to go, you got, got? Like, so I'm thinking about it. Didn't touch the turntable, just thinking about it in my head. How can I do this? How can I do this? We get to the sports arena, 10,000 people. I put the song on. I figure out, I think I know how to do it. <laughs> He's standing in the front row. And I point to him like, it's coming on. So I played it. He's like, okay. <laughs> go see. He put his photo of his arm, looked at me and said, we're going to see if you're the baddest motherfucker there is. <laughs> so the song came on. When the part came, it, you got, you got. And when it went, you, I did like a, like a triple threat. You got, you got, you. I stopped it with my hand. And the crossfitter was over here, and I turned the main volume down and turned it back up. Got, got. So I went, you got, you got, you got, got. Sticky, sit. And he lost his damn mind. <laughs> <laughs> he knew that it, was, it wasn't possible, but I did it. And I did it. And I'm like, oh. And I never practiced it. I just knew it in my head what I could do. And so when I grabbed the master volume, and pop, pop. He was like, it's like, you went, got. And the whole sound just stopped. They went, God, God, you know, it's like, how'd you do that? And I showed him I, I did it. It was like, fuck. <laughs> so that, I mean, you found ways to, you used that limitation to kind of inspire your, your creativity and yeah. stuff that might, maybe today's DJs take for me, granted. I bet you can't do this. So they were always trying me, and I was always figuring it out in my head. But then when, when he said it, I figured, like, you got, you got, you. All I got to do is stop the music and go, God, God. So I know how to do it. Mm. And he lost his mind to this very day. He comes on the road with me all over the world. Jamie yeah. Jupiter is his name. And he's like, Psh, you have me on You Got, You Got, You Got, Got. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, like, when we're doing the show, I pretty much do the same set all yeah. the time. But when he's looking, I try to do a little something different. And he goes, oh, you just messed me out right there. What, what you do? What you do? 
That's great. So like we do like triple threats, like deep, deep, deep in the city, people live in the streets. But somebody here he'd be looking and I'll go, deep, deep, digga, digga, deep in the hill. What you do? What you do? How'd you do that? <laughs> I said, I did halftime, deep, deep. Instead of deep, deep, it went deep, deep. And I just scratched it, deep, deep, digga, digga, deep in the, he's like, oh man. <laughs> so I would try to do a little stuff for him. Nice. To hype, because he sees, hears the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. So I do little tricks for him to keep him like the baddest one ever seen. That's cool. You guys have any other questions you want to toss in? No, I didn't even have any. Well, <laughs> I do have one. We we talked about um, a lot of the uh, big funk bands groups oh, that came man. from Ohio. Zapp and Roger, Lakeside, Ohio Players. I didn't know that all of them came from this area. Right so here. I was talking to Peanut Butter Wolf. He owns Stone Store Records. And I was talking to him. He said, yeah, you can to go to Dayton, Ohio. Steve Ernst said he wanted to have lunch with you. I'm like, oh, he lives in Dayton. Yeah, he said, you know, all of them from Dayton. I'm like, like all of who? He said, Zap and Bootsy and mm-hmm. Heatwave and, and mm-hmm. Fazo and like Slave and Lakeside. And I'm like, what? Dayton's done a terrible job of embracing that. I mean, we have where's such a Where's your documentary? Right. Where's, your, where's your documentary? About, we've talked about it. Where is it? These people are still alive. Mm-hmm. Why haven't you did a documentary? I have no idea. This, this place is one of the top three places for music in all of America. You got Motown in Detroit. You got L.A. New York. And you got here. Way before the Miami scene... This is huge. If you could pull three of them out, you could slave, zap, and lakeside. That's huge. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about Ohio players and he. This is huge. Yep. And you don't have a documentary. We, I mean, the youth he, don't even know how big exactly. their city is. Right. Exactly. Not at all. Not even. Your city is platinum, and you don't even know. You're walking on platinum dirt outside, <laughs> and you don't even know. How do you not know? Yeah, we we had a conversation about that a couple of weeks ago. It was just it's amazing that that people just have no idea. I, I mean, there's no there's such idea. a rich culture for like funk and that sort Man, of thing here. How do they not know that more bounce to the ounces right here? Mm-hmm. Yep. Steve Arrington, Slave. You know how big Slave was in L.A. <laughs> Every album had like monster hits on them. Man, this whole interview was was worth it just to get. The Egyptian that. lover to say amazing things about Dayton. That's a, you just made my whole lifetime. No, Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> made my lifetime. These saw me. Steve Arrington is like one of my favorites. I mean, he had oh baby, wait for me, and wait. I mean, <laughs> like who does that? Right. Dayton, Ohio, does that. That's right. Then yeah. you had more boss than an ounce. Who does that? No. Dayton, Ohio, yeah. does that. Absolutely. Lakeside. It's all the way live. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> man, y'all don't even know. All you youngsters, Google Dayton, Ohio groups. Go to YouTube. Look up every single one of them, especially in the 70s and the 80s. Go buy every one of them records. Don't, don't download them for free. Go buy every one of them records. If you can buy them on iTunes or whatever, get an artist some money. Give every single artist in Dayton, Ohio, some love and listen to those songs and get some new funk groups coming out of Dayton, Ohio and make you a million dollars. This is what it's all about. Keep the roots in Dayton, Ohio. Get all that funk back in the city and do it. 
I'm feeling pumped. I know, right? <laughs> Great. We, we seriously really appreciate that. I mean, we, you know, all of us in this room really have a lot of love for our city, and, and we know that it's, it's entirely well, I know underrated. the old school DJs know, but the young yeah. school DJs mm-hmm. need to learn. I mean, you guys need to have a funk hour on the station and just play all the old Dayton, Ohio funk album cuts idea. and all that. I mean, just tell them what it is. These, these people who still live here, who are still alive, go on. I mean, I did a show with Zap not too long ago. Mm. His brother's still doing shows. And they have a great show. Me and Steve Arrington did a show with Peter Butterworth from them in L.A. Man can still sing. I mean, he has a band <laughs> that's out of this world. I mean, these guys are still on the top of their game. Oh, yeah. Bootsy still yeah. runs all over the place in, in, in some of the most outrageous gear. that They're still here. I mean, yeah. we're not talking about 100 years from now when all of them have passed on. We're talking about they're still here now. You right. can still go yep. see a show. Right. And and Dayton, Ohio needs to, get to, to give back to them. Absolutely. Like I said, you're walking on platinum, platinum dirt outside, and you don't even know it. So I, think, li- I think everybody in this room knows that, but You're everybody DJs. else needs, You're needs to know. DJs, but all you listeners, <laughs> do your homework on your own city. Dayton, Ohio is the one. This is your Motown right here. I, I think only one person from Motown is bigger than anybody in Ohio. That's probably Michael Jackson. Everybody else is secondary to Zap and Steve Arrington. I mean, I don't even think Michael Jackson did. No. And you know, Michael Jackson's <laughs> biggest things was from the guy who produced Heat Wave. Mm. So the Thriller album is same guys who did Heat Wave. So it all has connections to roots to Dayton. See, I, I had no idea on that. Hmm. That's awesome. I mean, Thriller sounds like um, Groove Line. Think about it. <laughs> I'm going to go home and like, do nothing but listen. <laughs> listen to Boogie Nights, take the vocal out, and hear Michael Jackson singing to it. Okay. It's, it's a Thriller album. Hmm. I'm just going to be living in headphones for the next three days, just right. like comparing all this stuff. Listen now. to all Heat Wave stuff and listen to Michael Jackson's last um, big album, the last two big albums. You'll, you'll hear all the Heat Wave stuff. Rod Temperature name is on all that stuff. So my final question is pretty simple. It's what's the best piece of advice that you could give to today's aspiring DJs? Try to make them dance. I do a lot of parties and everybody just standing around looking. That's not a party. Mm. Put your phones down. If you're a good DJ, make them dance. Make them, make them have a good time. Make them put their phones down and say, wow, this is the best time I ever had in my life. A party back in the day was when you go to a party, see a nice girl, you dance with her. Whatever song was playing when you dance with her, that's your favorite record. I'm going to buy that record tomorrow. That's my favorite record. I remember all these, these memories with this girl with that record. Now, today, guys scared to dance with girls, and it's because of the cell phones. No guy wants to be on YouTube dancing with a girl on YouTube. Everybody's scared to be on TV. I mean, nobody wants to be filmed when they're getting in that groove. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're getting your groove on with two or three different girls. Now, none of the girls like you because you think that you're a player. You are a player, but you want nobody to be expose you like that. Right. <laughs> getting judged automatically from that yeah. cell phone. Put your cell phones down. Put your cell phones down, put them away, and have a good time. Live your life. Don't live somebody else's life through the phone. The Egyptian lover. Thank you so much for being here, man. Yes. Appreciate it.
Midnight Star. Is this mm. your first time here in Dayton? I think I played here in 84. Wow. Long story, but we, we came from another club, and when I did my show, we, we did everything live. But on Egypt, Egypt, we actually played the record, and on the breakdown, we played the, the 808. So it's like, oh, 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 oh. We stopped the record and go boom, boom. What well, is beautiful girl was at the club we did before we got to Dayton, Ohio. And she was like, I'd do anything for that record. I'm like, anything? <laughs> <laughs> anything. And she was fine. She got the record. Now we're on our way to Dayton, Ohio, and I ain't got no record. So how are we gonna do the show? So we was walk, we was driving in a in a truck. We was in the, the actual speaker truck. <laughs> we hit the ride with them. And we're like, go to the record store. And it was a Sunday. And everything was closed. And so I was like, why is everything closed on Sunday? What's going on? It's like, well, everything closed early. It was like five o'clock. Everything closed at five. And so we was walking down the street, and I saw this guy with a see-through <clears throat> bag, and he had a white album, and the, the circle you could barely see, but it looked kind of gold to me. I'm like, that's my record. Out of the blue, I just screamed that. And we pulled the truck over and said, hey, man, what record is in there? He said, oh, I got Egyptian love. I'll give you $100 for it. Okay. <laughs> and we got the record to do the show. You're kidding. Yep. Wow. And that happened here. That happened here. I'm the greatest pressure I got.